While Joel is on the way, I'm going to ask you to turn to Revelation chapter 14. All right, well, good morning to you. And uh, yes, we're going to be reading the uh, first, thir- first 13 vo- verses of the uh, 14th chapter of Revelation. So when you find it, will you please stand for reading God's Word? Alright, Revelation chapter 14, verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne, and before the four living creatures, and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. And it is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to, to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshippers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word for these uh, precious truths, sure promises, Lord, that you have given for the benefit, for the assurance of all of your people. Thank you for your word that sanctifies us, sanctifies us in setting us apart from the world and our thinking and our life and conduct and sets us apart as holy to you to be used for your honor and glory. Lord, we pray, empower us, enable us to be faithful representatives of Christ in this world, to reflect your character to those around us, to seek the salvation of those who need to know you. Lord, enable us to hold fast what you've given to us and faithfully fulfill the mission 
that you've entrusted to us to take the gospel to the nations. May we worship you and may we desire that the nations worship you as well. Open our ears to your truth today, Lord, that we're going to be looking at and considering in this passage. Make it have the effect on us that you have intended for it to have. Draw us closer to yourself. Give us a greater comprehension of your plan, your purpose, your will for us in this earth. A greater desire to know you, to know you better, and a greater compassion for those who do not know you. Work all these things out, we pray, Lord, for your own honor and glory, for our good. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. How great is our God, anyway? (laughs) He's great. He's great. He is great. Hopefully we'll we'll kind of get a glimpse of that as we're looking at this uh, passage this morning. Um, This is more assurance for the saints. Or um, using some of the terminology here in, in the passage we're looking at today, for the redeemed, right? This is assurance for the redeemed. And we'll talk about that in a moment. Who, who are the redeemed? But I want to encourage you to keep, um, uh, keep that in mind as we move through the book of Revelation. Um, because that's the main theme here this, that, that, uh, that, I, that keeps arising to the surface. God is giving these things to us, uh, the things that we have here, for our assurance, right? Assurance that He's on the throne no matter what's going on in the world and assurance that uh, we have a reward that awaits us. Eternal glory in the, in the presence of the Lord eternally. So this is just more um, uh, assurance of those things. Um, hopefully, something else that I'll hopefully continue to point out, what is, what is central here, in the book of Revelation, uh, is, is uh, not so much eschatological prophecy. A lot of times that's, that's the way that, that, um, that it is viewed. Um, pe- people think of it in terms, the book of Revelation in terms of, pretty much strictly in terms of end time prophecy, right? Well, of course there's a lot of that here. We've been talking about it. We're, we're going to talk about more of it, Lord willing. But what is really central to it is the same thing that is central to all of the Bible. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And and the gospel keeps emerging over and over and over again uh, in this passage. And we'll see it again here today. I think if we handle it right anyway, uh, Lord willing. All right, so so that is what's central to this book. The, the, The gospel of Christ... And, uh, and then, of course, um, it is given to us, that is, th- these things are given to us, this book is given to us for assurance so that we can live in this world um, knowing that God is on the throne and that uh, He's got everything in control in spite of what it looks like. All right, so let's, let's start uh, back in verse 1 here and just think for a moment where we've come from. You know, in fact, last week we, we were looking at something different, so, so it's been two weeks since we've... We've been in the book of Revelation. And where, where were we? All right. Well, remember back in chapter 13, 
we were introduced to the beast. Um, in fact, two of them. Um, and uh, this this is the work of Satan. I would say in its um, in its ultimate manifestation. And, and this is what is going to be coming in in the end time. Now, let me, let me again too. <clears throat> I've been saying this a lot too. Let me just reiterate here a little bit. In, in terms of this struggle that is going on between the, the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God, or you could say it this way, um, the world, which is represented by everybody who, who is uh, uh, outside of Christ, who does not know Christ, between the world and the kingdom of God, the people of God, or the church. This, this struggle that we've been talking about, this, this cosmic struggle, um, is not something that is, that is merely in the future. It is now. It's happening now. It has been going on. As a matter of fact, uh, we, were, we were talking a little bit about the fall back in Sunday school this morning. Uh, it's been going on since the fall, right? This struggle between the powers of, powers of Satan and the power uh, and kingdom of God. And, and Satan works through people, so you've got the whole world system uh, set over against the church, and the book of Revelation really highlights that. Um, so when I talk about things getting really bad in the end, I, want, I just want to be clear that I do th- think there's going to be an escalation, but it's going to be an, an, an escalation and an intensifying of things that have been going on all along. They, they, just, they just get worse. They just intensify. So... Uh, um, that's one reason right there we need assurance, right? Because you, you look around you today, uh, read the news, um, watch a little bit of it maybe online or on TV, whatever your source is, and it would be really easy to despair, right? And so then when I'm standing up here saying, it's going to get worse. <laughs> that's not real encouraging, is it? I mean, you think, man, that's not, not a very encouraging thought. But that's why we need this kind of assurance, that in the face of these things, even when it gets worse, God is in control. God is in control. He's not going to lose one of His people. Not one. Jesus assured us of that. All of Scripture assures us of that. He knows who uh, are His. He's got every hair on your head numbered. So, you know, regardless of how many you have, some have more than others. Uh, men, you know, you know how our situation. But he's got every hair number. He knows us, and he's not going to lose any one of us. All right, so that's great assurance, even even in the face of uh, real tribulation. All right, so so we've just been introduced to the beast, and we you know we've got all of these things uh, at least coming out of chapter thirteen. We should have all of these things fresh on our mind. In fact, we've been told that he's going to make war on the saints, and overcome them. And, and I pointed that out when we were going through chapter 13. That's, that's, uh, that's only going to be temporary, but it's still, uh, still pretty sobering, isn't it? it sounds, it's, it's serious. It's going to be real tribulation. So we're coming out of, out, of, out of all of that, that vision, including the mark of the beast, all of those things, and we get to chapter 14, Verse 1, and John says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. Again, all important. It's just like, you know, back in, in, in chapter 
uh, well, chapter 1, you know, he, he first he sees the glorified Christ, then you get to chapter 4, and there's the Lamb um, as though he had been slain. Uh, the, he's the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of Jesse, but he's also, but he's pictured there as the Lamb uh, who, who looks as though he's been slain, but he's standing. So he's, he's been slain, but he's conquered death. And you see how the, the gospel emerges here? Jesus is presented in victory, but as the Lamb, the Lamb that's been slain. Slain why? Well, slain for us, to, to purchase us, to pay for our sins, to purchase us. And now here again, John focuses the attention on the Lamb, and that's exactly where our attention needs to be, especially when thinking about all of these horrible things. Um, some of which are going on already in the world and, and much more uh, apparently to come. And as we're, we're thinking on these things, stay focused, or as John says here, behold the Lamb. Familiar words, aren't they? Remember when John the Baptist saw Jesus? Behold the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. That's how he introduced the people to Jesus. Behold the Lamb. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, it always makes me think of that. We're, we're called to run this race with endurance, right? The, the, their, uh, a race is used as an analogy for life. Uh, in fact, it's talking specifically about the, the struggles that we, uh, we encounter in this world. And the writer of Hebrews says, um, lay aside every, every sin, every, every weight, and every sin that so easily besets us, and run with endurance. The race that is set before us. That means live life, or you can say it this way, live the Christian life with endurance. Why does it call for endurance? Because it's not going to be a bed of roses. It is something that you have to endure. Because, Jesus says in John 16, in the world you have tribulation. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I've conquered the world. So the writer of Hebrews says, run with endurance, endure. In fact... He gives us a little help with that. Lay aside every weight and the sin. That is, don't, don't. Things are going to be complicated enough. Don't make, make it more complicated. I think I, I've, I've shared this story with you all before, but I was in a, one of our field days in high school. I was in a bicycle race, um, which I won, actually. I didn't win a whole lot of things, but I won that one. Um, and one of the guys that was competing, he thought he had it figured out. He, uh, he, he put weight, ankle weights on. And his thinking was that those weights were going to really help him get momentum. And then he was just going to fly by everybody. Well, you know, it wasn't long into the race before I passed him. And he was pretty wore out. <laughs> if he'd have just read Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily besets us. In other words, the writer of Hebrews is saying, you know, don't make it more complicated for yourself. It's going to be... Enough of a struggle. Just doing what you're supposed to do. You're going to need endurance. And, and how do we do that? Well, the writer of Hebrews tells us. Looking unto Jesus. The author or the originator and the perfecter, the completer, the finisher of our faith. So there again, that's assurance, right? How, how am I going to finish the race? Looking unto Jesus, the finisher. In other words, the, the one, He's the one that brings us to completion. 
He originated our faith, and He'll bring it to completion. So run the race with endurance, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. So in the midst of all this talk about tribulation here, all of a sudden, our attention is focused on the Lamb. The Lamb. Standing. He stood on Mount Zion. Reminds me of uh, Psalm 121. You know, they, the temple there was actually on a, on a hill, and, and they would sing as they were going up, you know, songs of, psalms of procession, ascension as they were going up. And uh, uh, the psalmist in Psalm 121 says, I will look to the hills from whence cometh my help. At least that's the old King James rendering. What's he talking about? Well, he's talking about looking to the temple, the house of God, because that's the hill, Mount Zion, the temple, the house of God, because that's where God's presence was. So in other words, it's a way of saying, I'm looking to the Lord. I'll look unto the hills from whence cometh my help. My help is in the Lord, he says. So, so that's, that's what's happening here. Our, our, our gaze is being turned upward. To the Lamb who stood. Again, he makes a point of saying he stood. And the tense of the verb here is um, a perfect tense. He, 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 having, having stood. I mean, it's the idea of, of being fixed. I mean, it's something that happened in the past with abiding results. So, he, he stood and he's still standing. Is kind of the idea there. And he's not going anywhere. anywhere. He'll always be standing. So, behold him, the Lamb. On Mount Zion, with and with him, John says, 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. This is important as well because remember, talking about the mark of the beast, um, that was the mark for people who were given over to the worship of the beast. And we're told they were marked on their forehead or, or their hands. Um, with his mark. It's, it's, the idea there is the mark of ownership. So you, what you've got here is, you know, these people are marked out for Satan, essentially, the beast. And these people over here are marked out for God. In fact, you, you remember just a few chapters back, what was it, chapter 4 or something like that? And not 4. Um, chapter 6, chapter 7, where they were marked out and sealed with the seal of God. In fact, in chapter 7 is where we were first introduced to the 144,000. And they're brought up again here. And they have a mark on their foreheads, the mark of uh, with the Father's name, uh, written on their foreheads. So these are people who belong to the Lord. And I told you when we were back in chapter 7, uh, I think they just represent... Um, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a way, it's a picture representing the people of God. All of, all of the people of God. They're presented here in various ways, and I know there are different ideas. Some people think, well, the 144,000 uh, are totally distinct, for example, from the uh, innumerable multitude that is also in chapter 7. I don't think so. I think it's just different images representing the same thing. So if that's correct, what we have here is the Lamb on Mount Zion standing... And with him, all of God's people, those who are marked out, they have on their foreheads the name of his father, the Lamb's father. And they're standing there 
with Him. Not only standing, but singing. Singing a new song, John says. You go down to um, verse 3. They were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Now notice here the way that they're 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 identified as is as uh, they're identified as the redeemed. That's again another reason I think that uh, it's talking here about all of the redeemed, all of God's people. But he uses this terminology twice. You see it first there in uh, in verse three. And then he goes on to say verse four. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed. So they're, they're the redeemed. They've been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. So redeemed out from mankind, redeemed for or unto God and the Lamb. These are the people of God or the people of the Lamb, one and the same. And in their mouth, uh, no lie was found for they are blameless. All right, Here, here's, here's a few things here just just. For identification purposes, because we can we keep having these different contrasts. Um, what about the description here that John gives us about the 144,000? They do not defile themselves for women, for they are virgins. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. And then He goes on to say, um, at the end of verse five, they are blameless. That description right there is why a lot of people believe it's talking about some um, distinct group of Christians rather than all of God's people. But given all of the imagery that's used here, um, I, I, think, I think that, again, it's just a way of talking about the purity of God's people. In other words, not literally virgins and blameless in the sense that... Um, we have the righteousness of Christ put to our account, and we follow Him wherever He goes. And because we're bought by Him and because we follow Him, we are blameless because of His righteousness. And, as, and again, uh, getting back to the term virgins, well, in, in the book of Revelation, as elsewhere in the Bible, um, ungodliness is often portrayed as... Um, fornication, adultery, you know, symbolically, adultery, right? Well, the idea here is the, this group of people, this 144,000, is, is pure in the sense that they are faithful, right? They've remained um, pure and faithful. Um, so they're, they're, they're um, virgins in that sense, uh, in a spiritual sense. No... No um, idolatry. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. And, and you'll, you'll see more of this as we go. For example, you get over to chapter 17, and the, uh, the world system uh, that is um, pitted against the kingdom of God is presented in chapter 17 as a great prostitute. Okay? So you can kind of see that contrast. You know, a prostitute there versus here, virgins. It's just purity over against 
um, wickedness and idolatry. All right, so here's what I want to really key in on, though, and that's this word redeemed. Redeemed. They are the redeemed. And I I, I think, again, it's talking about all of God's redeemed. So here you have Christ pictured with His people. What does it mean, redeemed? Redeemed. And and we're, we're reminded here again, because in this vision, Christ is pictured as the Lamb. So we're reminded here again about His sacrifice. About what He did at Mount Zion. He was the Lamb who was slain. Right? Why, why a lamb? Why is Christ pictured as a lamb? Because under the old covenant, uh, lambs were used in offerings to cover the sins of the people. So, for example, you think about the, the Passover. When the Passover was instituted, the people of Israel were instructed to take a lamb, sacrifice it, put the blood on their doorpost, and when the angel of destruction came through the land of Egypt, to kill all of the firstborn. When he got to a house that had the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, he would pass over that house and that family. So they would be safe because the blood of the lamb was applied to their household. Now, that's just a picture. I mean, it really happened, but it's a looking forward to a greater reality the sacrifice of Christ at Calvary. So He's the ultimate Lamb. He's the Lamb. In fact, your version, whatever version you're looking at, that's probably capitalized. Capital L, Lamb. That's Jesus. He's the Lamb. The Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. In one place it says, or actually I think, well, I'll get to deal with that when we come to it. I actually think it's just talking about uh, the book. Uh, Book of Life written before the foundation of the world, but the way that it's worded in some translations, it makes it sound like he was slain before the foundation of the world. But he's the lamb that was slain. And John says, the lamb slain for the sins of the world in, in, uh, in his gospel. So that imagery of the lamb recalls his sacrifice. Now what was he doing in his sacrifice? Well, he's purchasing a people. Making payment for our sins. Paying the penalty that we owe because of our sins. That's the idea behind the word redeem. To, pur- to purchase. It's, it's, it's similar to, you think of somebody buying somebody off of the slave block, right? Paying the price. Well, there's, there's a price, a, a penalty for our sins. That penalty is death. And it had to be paid. Contrary to um, the way people like to think today, God doesn't, doesn't sweep sin under the rug. He can't overlook it. He can't just say, well, you know what, I'll just pretend like that didn't happen. Because God is holy. And He deals with sin. Wages of sin is death. In other words, you sin, you deserve to die, you have earned death. That wage, that debt, that penalty must be paid. So Christ went like a lamb to the slaughter. He was led to Calvary to lay down His own life for us. And of course, we've, we've talked about this before. Not, not only was He, you know, not, not only the physical suffering, suffering persecution, uh, uh, suffering crucifixion rather, 
but um, enduring while he was on the cross, enduring the outpouring of the wrath of his father. Why did he do that? To pay the price for us. Now, I'm saying all that to say this. If you belong to him, you've been purchased. You've been bought. And that's what the word redeemed means. And Paul has to remind the, the Corinthian church of that, uh, you know, because their, their whole life, uh, manner of life and conduct and all that, you know, had gotten so bad. And, and Paul had to, had to remind them, you've been bought with a price. You're not your own. We still have that same problem today, of course. And we need to be reminded of that. You know, when, when we want to exalt our own opinions or our own preferences, when we want to put ourselves before others, remember, we're not our own. And of course, the ultimate expression of that is, is putting ourselves before God, right? When I want to put myself before God and say, you know, I really, this time, I just, I really like to have it my way. Kind of like they do at Burger King. By the way, they're not doing too good on that philosophy. A lot of them are closing down. But <laughs> I don't know if it's got anything to do with that. But I do know this. Christians can't live like that because we're, we're bought with a price. We're paid for. We are not our own, Paul says. That's good news because you know what that means. We're among the redeemed. We're among those that have been bought and paid for with the blood, the death of the Lamb. We're among those to whom his, his blood has been applied. So that when it comes to God's wrath, which we're going to read about here in just a moment if I get there. If not, we'll, uh, we'll deal with it tonight, Lord willing. But when it comes to God's wrath, we get passed over. Because we've got His name written on our forehead. His blood applied. His righteousness applied to us. We're of this number, which again, I don't think is a literal 144,000. It's just a a way of representing fullness or completion. And, uh, you know, my understanding that Jehovah's Witnesses used to say that uh, this was all that were going to be saved, 144,000. They took the number literally and they said, uh, it's only going to be 144,000 people saved. But the problem was their organization grew beyond that number. So they had to, uh, uh, you know... Uh, update and uh, <laughs> they had to update their interpretation and change it a little bit. Um, but no, I don't, it's not a literal uh, uh, number. I don't think it's just a way of referring to the redeemed. In other words, there is a perfect number that God has ordained that He's bringing to Himself that He has bought that Jesus came and died for, paid for with His own death, with His own blood. And what are they doing? Mourning because judgment is coming, because God is about to pour. Now they're singing. They're singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures. Remember them? The, the four, um, I think, uh, celestial beings, um, the, the four living creatures and, and also the, the 24 elders. And they're singing before them a new song. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed or bought. Redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God. This is verse 4. And the Lamb. 
verse 6. And I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory because the hour of His judgment has come and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Well, isn't that a good message for today? Of course, of course it is because it's, just, it's the eternal gospel. That's what it says, right? So, so it's, it's a good message for all times. But how, how much we need to proclaim that today and hear that today. Fear God. Worship Him. The One who made all things. The One who made the heavens and the earth. Give Him glory. It's a call, therefore, repentance and submission to the King. To the King of kings and Lord of lords. To the Creator, God Almighty. Fear Him, that is, reverence Him, honor Him. Let His name be hallowed. Remember when the disciples asked Jesus, teach us how to pray. Uh, That's how He started out. Hallowed be your name. In other words, the, the very first petition was, Lord, let your name be hallowed. <laughs> that is central to the heart of God. That His name be hallowed. That it be made much of, as John Piper likes to say. That's a good way to put it. That He be made much of. That He be exalted that He be honored. I mean, there, there are many, many ways you could say it. Give Him the glory that He is due. Ascribe to Him the glory He's due. We, uh, David just read earlier in Psalm 96. And that's more than just verbal, by the way. It's not just... In fact, you know, goes hand in hand with fear Him, right? So, in other words, live in a way that honors God and, and gives to Him, ascribes to Him the glory that He's due. That's what the eternal gospel is calling for. And ultimately, what that means is submission to Jesus Christ. I mean, this is not another gospel. This is not something apart from the Lamb slain. No, this is the same eternal gospel that this angel is calling all nations to believe. And again, I think uh, this is a, 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 it's a vision. It's symbolizing, uh, I think, the, uh, the um, proclamation of the gospel. I, I, I don't take it to be literal that an angel is going to be preaching the gospel. I think what's happening here, and this is probably one point we want to think in terms of chronology. Um, we, we've, we've been moving through here and looking at all of this, the different phenomenon that are taking place, and I've mentioned a few times that for the most part what we've been seeing is stuff that just goes on in this age. The tribulation that Jesus was talking about when He said, in the world you will have tribulation. Stuff that He was talking about in Luke 21, Mark 13, Matthew 24, when He said, you know, there'll be wars and rumors of wars and famines, earthquakes in various places. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. The stuff that's been going on really since the beginning of the, of the world, since the fall, and throughout the church age. That's much of what we've been seeing so far, but we're, we're, we're coming to this point in, in, uh, in the visions here that, that, uh, that the Lord is giving to John. We're coming to this point where all of those things intensify. In fact, we've already seen hints of it, and we, and we get some more and some more until we finally get to 
um, descriptions of the fulfillments of it. But it's spoken about here as well. But we're getting to that place where all of that intensifies. The wrath of Satan, like we saw in, in uh, chapter 13, the wrath of Satan comes out in full force against the kingdom of God. And simultaneously, God begins to pour out His wrath on the world. Not on His people. Again, this is one reason we have assurance here. We're not going to be included in as recipients of the wrath of God. He's not pouring out His wrath on the people, but he's, on His own people, but He's pouring out His wrath on the world. So that's kind of where we are chrono- chronologically. We're right up to that point, the very end of the end. And I think as we go through the seven bold judgments here, that's what's happening. God is pouring out His wrath at the very end. And then there's the final judgment uh, at Christ's return. So this is like a last call, it seems to me, or a way of saying that time is not... Well, it it is up and it isn't up. It's, It's like saying, time's up, repent now or else. In other words, this is the last call, last opportunity. So, so the, the gospel goes out. and In fact, Jesus said it would go out into all the world before the end comes. I think that's what's represented here. And that's, as I said, that's what's been happening throughout the church age. But now we're at the very end of it. And here's the proclamation. Fear God, the eternal gospel. Fear God. Give Him glory. Because the hour of His judgment has come. Time is up. Last chance. Last call. You're either in or you're out. And if you're out, it's time to get in. It's like the last moments before the Lord shuts the door on the ark. And Noah and his wife and his family are boarded. The animals are boarded. And you got to wonder, I mean, you know, I know this is just a little speculation, but were, were they all alone at that moment? Or were there still some people, scoffers, standing around watching? And then God shuts the door. And the day of grace is over. Everyone is missed out except for the eight souls inside the ark. That's, that's kind of where we're at here. Last call. This is it. Because the time for judgment has come. And brothers and sisters, that day, and I'm not saying it's this day, you know, um, what's today? July the 5th, 2015. But, but that day is coming when the day of grace is over. I don't know if it's today, tomorrow, ten years from now, a thousand years from now. I don't know. But it's coming. And this is, this is what we're seeing here. So, so the call, until then, the call goes out. The invitation, if you will. Fear, fear God, give Him glory. Do it now, is kind of the attitude here, because the day of judgment has come. Worship Him who made heaven and earth. Instead of the beast, I mean, that's the idea here, because the people of the world, they're all marveling after and following after the beast. The whole world system that they're enamorated with and that they think nothing compares to. You know, who can make war with the beast? 
And instead, the eternal gospel is calling on people to, to worship the eternal God, the God who made everything. Verse 8, another angel, a second, follows, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon. Now, these are things I'm going to move through quickly here, but we're, we're going to get opportunity in the, in the chapters ahead um, to talk about this in detail. And we'll talk about it some tonight as well, Lord willing, but um, also in the chapters ahead. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Now you see there the contrast with the virgins. Um, here we're talking about the world system, caught up in idolatry. Verse 9, And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. There's a little bit of a play on words there in the Greek. It's, it's, the, it's the wine of God's wrath mixed without mixture. Mixed without mixture. In other words, just as it's translated here, the idea is full strength. In other words, they didn't, they didn't mix it with water to dilute it. So what, you, what, what he's saying is, you've got God's wrath coming undiluted. Now, I think it'd be proper to say um, what we've seen so far is somewhat diluted because there's, there's a mixture of common grace. It rains on the just and it rains on the unjust. The sun rises on the just and it rises on the unjust. And Jesus said, anyone who doesn't believe, anyone who doesn't believe on Him, the wrath of God abides on you. Some sobering words there. And Paul says in Romans 1, it's coming now. The wrath of God is manifest. It's, it's unveiled against all ungodliness. Now, the idea there is it's happening now. And he goes on to, to spell out the way that it's happening is people are being given over to follow their own lusts. And so God's wrath is coming now, and it's being manifest now, but it's somewhat diluted because there's that mixture. And I don't mean that you know God's not powerful, don't get me wrong. I'm just saying that at the same time He's manifesting His wrath, He's also manifesting common grace. But there's a time coming where His wrath is manifest without mixture. Full strength. It's already happened once <laughs> when Jesus was on the cross. And for all of the elect, for all, for all of God's people, Jesus took upon Himself the undiluted, full measure of the outpouring of the wrath of His Father. So much so that He cried, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? He took on Himself the full measure of God's undiluted wrath. 
He also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength, verse 10, into the cup of His anger, and He will be tormented. That is, all those who follow the beast, all those who worship the beast, all those who take the mark on, his, on their forehead or on their hand. Now, let me just say, um, and we're out of time, so I've got to do this quickly, but let me just say, um, I think what is being signified there is just simply those who reject the gospel. Like I said, you're either in or you're out. There's no neutral ground. So we either have God's mark on us, God's seal on us, or we have the mark of the beast on us, Satan's mark. Our lives, our, our I mean, who we are to the core, our thinking is marked one way or the other. And what is coming for those who wear the mark of the beast is judgment, full strength. And to go on in verse 10, he says, He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. It's eternal torment. And this this damnation, this condemnation, this judgment is eternal. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. There again, we'll get to talk about this more as we go. Um, The destination for the people of God is rest. (laughs) Hallelujah! Rest! Rest! But for the ungodly, they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. Well, that, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Remember chapter 13, verse 10? Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. In other words, those who are faithful, and against the 144,000, they're pure. Those who are faithful to Christ, they follow Him wherever He goes. They're not, they're not running after the beast. They're not run, running after this world and the things of this world. They're following after the Lamb. They're bought. They're bought and paid for by the blood of the Lamb. And they're following Him wherever He goes. Here is the call for the endurance of the saints. Those keeping the commandments of God and Faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may, what? Rest. That they may rest from their labors for their deeds. Follow them. That's a way of speaking about reward. Reward. Look, it's bad, and it's going to get worse. Now, I'm not, I don't know, in our lifetime? I think so. Then again, what if God decides to send revival, you know, and, and revival starts breaking out everywhere? That could happen too, couldn't it? He can do that. He's done it before. He can do it again. That's up to Him. And uh, uh, like D.A. Carson likes to say, you know, I'm not a prophet, neither is the son of the prophet. Uh, even though I do work for a nonprofit organization, but uh, or also work for a non. So, 
you know, God can do what He wants to do, and I, I don't know, but I know eventually, this is true, so eventually the day of grace runs out. It might be today, might be this week, might be a thousand years from now. Eventually the day of grace runs out, and judgment undiluted is coming to those who do not follow Christ. But for those who follow Christ, and this is where the assurance comes in for, for Christians suffering in this world, for those who follow Christ, we are blessed. Blessed indeed, the Spirit says. Blessed are the dead who die. You're not, oh, you know, sorry for the dead that have to die. No, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest. In other words, in this world, just like Jesus said, in this world you have tribulation. But what lies ahead if you're bought by the Lamb? Rest. 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 Rest from our labors. For our deeds follow us, He says. What you do Probably the best way I know to kind of like paraphrase that that part. Your deeds follow their deeds follow them. What you do, what you live in this life, has eternal consequences. You're either following after the beast, that is the world and the world system. You're either following after the beast, and you will suffer the torment, the same torment that the beast suffers. For eternity. Or you're following the Lamb wherever He goes and you will rest with Him eternally. So, no matter how bad it gets in this world, Christian, rest lies ahead for us, reward lies ahead for us. Eternity in His presence. Isn't it true that sometimes, I mean, it shouldn't be. A lot of times it's on our part, but isn't it true that sometimes you don't sense the presence of God? You know what? There's a day coming when that will never happen again. In His presence forever. That's the destiny of the redeemed. I mean, that's what we have before us. Would you stand, please? Let's pray again and we'll be dismissed. Brother Buck, would you mind leading us in a word of prayer?